American Notes, Chapter 18. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter 18. Concluding Remarks. And Postscript. There are many passages in this book where I have been at some pains to resist the temptation of troubling my readers with my own deductions and conclusions, preferring that they should judge for themselves from such premises as I have laid before them. My only object in the outset was to carry them with me faithfully wheresoever I went, and that task I have discharged. But I may be pardoned if, on such a theme as the general character of the American people, and the general character of their social system as presented to a stranger's eyes, I desire to express my own opinions in a few words before I bring these volumes to a close. They are, by nature, frank, brave, cordial, hospitable, and affectionate. Cultivation and refinement seem but to enhance their warmth of heart and ardent enthusiasm, and it is the possession of these latter qualities in a most remarkable degree which renders an educated American one of the most endearing and most generous of friends. I never was so won upon as by this class, never yielded up my full confidence and esteem so readily and pleasurably as to them, never can make again in half a year so many friends for whom I seem to entertain the regard of half a life. These qualities are natural, I implicitly believe, to the whole people. That they are, however, sadly sapped and blighted in their growth among the mass, and that there are influences at work which endanger them still more, and give but little present promise of their healthy restoration, is a truth that ought to be told. It is an essential part of every national character to pique itself mightily upon its faults, and to deduce tokens of its virtue or its wisdom from their very exaggeration. One great blemish in the popular mind of America and the prolific parent of an innumerable brood of evils, is universal distrust. Yet the American citizen plumes himself upon this spirit, even when he is sufficiently dispassionate to perceive the ruin it works, and will often adduce it, in spite of his own reason, as an instance of the great sagacity and acuteness of the people, and their superior shrewdness and independence. "'You carry,' says the stranger, "'this jealousy and distrust into every transaction of public life.' by repelling worthy men from your legislative assemblies it has bred up a class of candidates for the suffrage who in their very act disgrace your institutions and your people's choice it has rendered you so fickle and so given to change that your inconstantly has passed into a proverb for you no sooner set up an idol firmly than you are sure to pull it down and dash it into fragments and this because directly you reward a benefactor or a public servant you distrust him merely because he is rewarded, and immediately apply yourself to find out either that you have been too bountiful in your acknowledgments, or he remiss in his deserts. Any man who attains a high place among you, from the President downwards, may date his downfall from that moment, for any printed lie that any notorious villain pens, although it militate directly against the character and conduct of a life, appeals at once to your distrust and is believed." You will strain at a gnat in the way of trustfulness and confidence, however fairly won and well-deserved. But you will swallow a whole caravan of camels, if they be laden with unworthy doubts and mean suspicions. Is this well, think you, or likely to elevate the character of the governors or the governed among you? The answer is invariably the same. There's freedom of opinion here, you know. 
Every man thinks for himself, and we are not to be easily overreached. That's how our people come to be suspicious. Another prominent feature is the love of smart dealing, which gilds over many a swindle and gross breach of trust, many a defalcation, public and private, and enables many a knave to hold his head up with the best, who well deserves a halter, though it has not been without its retributive operation, for this smartness has done more in a few years to impair the public credit, and to cripple the public resources, than dull honesty, however rash, could have effected in a century. The merits of a broken speculation, or a bankruptcy, or of a successful scoundrel, are not gauged by its or his observance of the golden rule, do as you would be done by, but are considered with reference to their smartness. I recollect on both occasions of our passing that ill-fated Cairo on the Mississippi, remarking on the bad effects such gross deceits must have when they exploded, in generating a want of confidence abroad, and discouraging foreign investment. But I was given to understand that this was a very smart scheme by which a deal of money had been made, and that its smartest feature was— that they forgot these things abroad in a very short time, and speculated again as freely as ever. The following dialogue I have held a hundred times. Is it not a very disgraceful circumstance that such a man as so-and-so should be acquiring a large property by the most infamous and odious means, and notwithstanding all the crimes of which he has been guilty, should be tolerated and abetted by your citizens? He is a proper nuisance, is he not? Yes, sir. A convicted liar? Yes, sir. He has been kicked and cuffed and caned, yes, sir. And he is utterly dishonourable, debased, and profligate, yes, sir. In the name of wonder, then, what is his merit? Well, sir, he is a smart man. In like manner, all kinds of deficient and impolitic usages are referred to the national love of trade, though oddly enough it would be a weighty charge against a foreigner that he regarded the Americans as a trading people. The love of trade is assigned as a reason for that comfortless custom, so very prevalent in country towns, of married persons living in hotels, having no fireside of their own, and seldom meeting from early morning until late at night, but at the hasty public meals. The love of trade is a reason why the literature in America is to remain for ever unprotected, for we are a trading people and don't care for poetry though we do, by the way, profess to be very proud of our poets, while healthful amusements, cheerful means of recreation, and wholesome fancies must fade before the stern utilitarian joys of trade. These three characteristics are strongly presented at every turn full in the stranger's view. But the foul growth of America has a more tangled root than this, and it strikes its fibres deep in the licentious press. Schools may be erected, east, west, north, and south, pupils be taught and masters reared by scores upon scores of thousands. Colleges may thrive, churches may be crammed, temperance may be diffused, and advancing knowledge in all other forms walk through the land with great strides, but while the newspaper press of America is in or near its present abject state, high moral improvement in that country is hopeless. Year by year it must and will go back, Year by year the tone of public feeling must sink lower down. Year by year the Congress and the Senate must become of less account before all decent men, and year by year the memory of the great fathers of the Revolution must be outraged more and more in the bad life of their degenerate child. 
Among herd of journals which are published in the States, there are some, the reader scarcely need be told, of character and credit. From personal intercourse with accomplished gentlemen connected with publications of this class, I have derived both pleasure and profit. But the name of these is few, and of the others legion, and the influence of the good is powerless to counteract the moral poison of the bad. Among the gentry of America, among the well-informed and moderate, in the learned professions, at the bar, and on the bench, there is, as there can be, but one opinion in reference to the vicious character of these infamous journals. It is sometimes contended, I will not say strangely, for it is natural to seek excuses for such a disgrace, that their influence is not so great as a visitor would suppose. I must be pardoned for saying that there is no warrant for this plea, and that every fact and circumstance tends directly to the opposite conclusion. When any man of any grade of desert in intellect or character can climb to any public distinction, no matter what, in America, without first grovelling down upon the earth and bending the knee before this monster of depravity, when any private excellence is safe from its attacks, when any social confidence is left unbroken by it, or any tie of social decency and honour is held in the least regard, when any man in that free country has freedom of opinion, and presumes to think for himself and speak for himself without humble reference to a censorship which, for its rampant ignorance and base dishonesty, he utterly loathes and despises in his heart, when those who most acutely feel its infamy and the reproach it casts upon the nation, and who most denounce it to each other, dare to set their heels upon and crush it openly in the sight of all men, then— I will believe that its influence is lessening, and men are returning to their manly senses. But while that press has its evil eye in every house, and its black hand in every appointment in the state, from a president to a postman, while with ribald slander for its only stock and trade, it is the standard literature of an enormous class who must find their reading in a newspaper or they will not read at all, so long must its odium be upon the country's head, and so long must the evil it works be plainly visible in the Republic. To those who are accustomed to the leading English journals, or to the respectable journals of the continent of Europe, to those who are accustomed to anything else in print and paper, it would be impossible, without an amount of extract for which I have neither space nor inclination, to convey an adequate idea of this frightful engine in America. But if any man desire confirmation of my statement on this head, let him repair to any place in the city of London where scattered numbers of these publications are to be found, and there let him form his own opinion. Note to the original edition, or let him refer to an able and perfectly truthful article in the Foreign Quarterly Review, published in the present month of October, to which my attention has been attracted since these sheets have been passing through the press. He will find some specimens there by no means remarkable to any man who has been in America, but sufficiently striking to one who has not. It would be well, there can be no doubt, for the American people as a whole, if they love the real less and the ideal somewhat more. It would be well, if there were greater encouragement to lightness of heart and gaiety, and a wider cultivation of what is beautiful without being eminently and directly useful. But here I think the general remonstrance, we are a new country, which is so often advanced as an excuse for defects which are quite unjustifiable, as being of right only the slow growth of an old one, may be very reasonably urged. And I yet hope to hear of there being some other national amusement in the United States besides newspaper politics. 
They certainly are not a humorous people, and their temperament always impressed me as being of a dull and gloomy nature. In shrewdness of remark and a certain cast-iron quaintness, the Yankees, or people of New England, unquestionably take the lead, as they do in most other evidences of intelligence. But in travelling about out of the large cities, as I have remarked in former parts of these volumes, I was quite oppressed by the prevailing seriousness and melancholy air of business, which was so general and unvarying that at every new town I came to I seemed to meet the very same people whom I had left behind me at the last. Such defects as are perceptible in the national matters seem to me to be referable in a great degree to this cause, which has generated a dull, sullen persistence in coarse usages, and rejected the graces of life as undeserving of attention. There is no doubt that Washington, who was always most scrupulous and exact on points of ceremony, perceived the tendency towards this mistake even in his time, and did his utmost to correct it. I cannot hold with other writers on these subjects that the prevalence of various forms of dissent in America is in any way attributable to the non-existence there of an established church. Indeed, I think the temper of the people, if it admitted to such an institution being founded amongst them, would lead them to desert it as a matter of course, merely because it was established. But supposing it to exist, I doubt its probable efficacy in summoning the wandering sheep to one great fold, simply because of the immense amount of dissent which prevails at home, and because I do not find in America any one form of religion with which we in Europe, or even England, are unacquainted. Dissenters resort thither in great numbers, as other people do, simply because it is a land of resort, and great settlements of them are founded, because ground can be purchased, and towns and villages reared, where there were none of the human creation before. But even the Shakers emigrated from England. Our country is not unknown to Mr. Joseph Smith, the Apostle of Mormonism, or to his benighted disciples. I have beheld religious scenes myself in some of our populous towns, which can hardly be surpassed by an American camp-meeting, and I am not aware that any instance of superstitious imposture on the one hand, and superstitious credulity on the other, has had its origin in the United States, which we cannot more than parallel by the precedence of Mrs. Southcote, Mary Toffs the rabbit-breeder, or even Mr. Thorne of Canterbury, which latter case arose some time after the Dark Ages had passed away. The Republican institutions of America undoubtedly lead the people to assert their self-respect and their equality, but a traveller is bound to bear those institutions in his mind, and not hastily to resent the near approach of a class of strangers who, at home, would keep aloof. This characteristic, when it was tinctured with no foolish pride, and stopped short of no honest service, never offended me, and I very seldom, if ever, experienced its rude or unbecoming display." Once or twice it was comically developed, as in the following case, but this was an amusing incident and not the rule, or near it. I wanted a pair of boots at a certain town, for I had none to travel in, but those with the memorable cork soles which were much too hot for the fiery decks of a steamboat. I therefore sent a message to an artist in boots, importing with my compliments that I should be happy to see him if he would do me the polite favour to call. He very kindly returned for answer that he would look round at six o'clock that evening. I was lying on the sofa, with a book and a wine-glass, at about that time, when the door opened, and a gentleman in a stiff cravat, within a year or two on either side of thirty, entered in his hat and gloves, walked up to the looking-glass, arranged his hair, 
took off his gloves, slowly produced measure from the uttermost depths of his coat-pocket, and requested me in a languid tone to unfix my straps. I complied, but looked with some curiosity at his hat, which was still upon his head. It might have been that, or it might have been the heat, but he took it off. Then he sat himself down on a chair opposite to me, rested an arm on each knee, and leaning forward very much, took from the ground by a great effort the specimen of metropolitan workmanship which I had just pulled off, whistling pleasantly as he did so. He turned it over and over, surveyed it with a contempt no language can express, and inquired if I wished him to fix me a boot like that. I courteously replied that provided the boots were large enough, I would leave the rest to him that if convenient and practicable i should not object to their bearing some resemblance to the model then before him but that i would be entirely guided by and would beg to leave the whole subject to his judgment and discretion you ain't particular about this scoop in the heel i suppose then says he we don't follow that here i repeated my last observation he looked at himself in the glass again went closer to it to dash a grain or two of dust out of the corner of his eye and settled his cravat all this time my leg and foot were in the air. "'Nearly ready, sir?' I inquired. "'Well, pretty nigh,' he said. "'Keep steady.' I kept as steady as I could, both in foot and face, and having by this time got the dust out and found his pencil-case, he measured me and made the necessary notes. When he had finished he fell into his old attitude, and taking up the boot again, mused for some time. "'And this,' he said at last, "'is an English boot, is it? This is a London boot, eh?' "'That, sir,' I replied, "'is a London boot.' He mused over it again, after the manner of Hamlet with Yorick's skull, nodded his head as who should say, "'I pity the institutions that led to the production of this boot,' rose, put up his pencil, notes, and paper, glancing at himself in the glass all the time, put on his hat, drew on his gloves very slowly, and finally walked out. When he had been gone about a minute the door reopened, and his hat and his head reappeared. He looked round the room, and at the boot again, which was still lying on the floor, appeared thoughtful for a minute, and then said, "'Well, good afternoon.' "'Good afternoon, sir,' I said, and that was the end of the interview. There is but one other head on which I wish to offer a remark, and that has reference to the public health. In so vast a country, where there are thousands of millions of acres of land yet unsettled and uncleared, and on every root of which vegetable decomposition is annually taking place, where there are so many great rivers and such opposite varieties of climate, there cannot fail to be a great amount of sickness at certain seasons. But I may venture to say, after conversing with many members of the medical profession in America, that I am not singular in the opinion that much of the disease which does prevail might be avoided, if a few common precautions were observed. Greater means of personal cleanliness are indispensable to this end. The custom of hastily swallowing large quantities of animal food three times a day, and rushing back to sedentary pursuits after every meal, must be changed. The gentler sex must go more wisely clad, and take more healthful exercise, and in the latter clause the males must be included also. Above all, in public institutions, and throughout the whole of every town and city, the system of ventilation and drainage and removal of impurities requires to be thoroughly revised. There is no local legislature in America which may not study Mr. Chadwick's excellent retort upon the sanitary condition of our labouring classes with immense advantage. I have now arrived at the close of this book. 
I have little reason to believe from certain warnings I have had since I returned to England that it will be tenderly or favourably received by the American people. And as I have written in truth in relation to the mass of those who form their judgment and express their opinions, it will be seen that I have no desire to court by any adventitious means the popular applause. It is enough for me to know that what I have set down in these pages cannot cost me a single friend on the other side of the Atlantic who is in anything deserving of the name. For the rest, I put my trust implicitly in the spirit in which they have been conceived and penned, and I can bide my time. I have made no reference to my reception, nor have I suffered it to influence me in what I have written, for, in either case, I should have offered but a sorry acknowledgment, compared with that I bear within my breast, towards those partial readers of my former books across the water, who met me with an open hand, and not with one that closed upon an iron muzzle. Postscript at a public dinner given to me on Saturday, the 18th of April, 1868, in the city of New York, by two hundred representatives of the press of the United States of America, I made the following observations, among others. So much of my voice has lately been heard in the land, that I might have been contented with troubling you no further from my present standing-point, were it not a duty with which I henceforth charge myself, not only here, but on every suitable occasion, whatsoever and wheresoever, to express my high and grateful sense of my second reception in America, and to bear my honest testimony to the national generosity and magnanimity. Also to declare how astounded I have been by the amazing changes I have seen around me on every side, changes moral, changes physical, changes in the amount of land subdued in people, changes in the rise of vast new cities, changes in the growth of older cities almost out of recognition, changes in the graces and amenities of life, changes in the press without whose advancement no advancement can take place anywhere. Nor am I, believe me, so arrogant as to suppose that in five-and-twenty years there have been no changes in me, and that I had nothing to learn and no extreme impressions to correct when I was here first. And this brings me to a point on which I have, ever since I landed in the United States last November, observed a strict silence, though sometimes tempted to break it, but in reference to which I will, with your good leave, take you into my confidence now. Even the press, being human, may be sometimes mistaken or misinformed, and I rather think that I have in one or two rare instances observed its information to be not strictly accurate with reference to myself. Indeed I have now and again been more surprised by printed news that I have read of myself than by any printed news that I have ever read in my present state of existence. Thus the vigour and perseverance with which I have for some months past been collecting materials for and hammering away at a new book on America has much astonished me, seeing that all that time my declaration has been perfectly well known to my publishers on both sides of the Atlantic, that no consideration on earth would induce me to write one. But what I have intended, what I have resolved upon, and this is the confidence I seek to place in you, is, on my return to England, in my own person, in my own journal, to bear for the behoof of my countrymen such testimony to the gigantic changes in this country as I have hinted at to-night, also to record that wherever I have been, in the smallest places equally with the largest, I have been received with unsurpassable politeness, delicacy, sweet temper, 
hospitality, consideration, and with unsurpassable respect for the privacy daily enforced upon me by the nature of my avocation here and the state of my health. This testimony, so long as I live, and so long as my descendants have any legal right in my books, I shall cause to be republished as an appendix to every copy of these two books of mine in which I have referred to America. And this I will do, and cause to be done, not in mere love and thankfulness, but because I regard it as an act of plain justice and honour. I said these words with the greatest earnestness that I could lay upon them, and I repeat them in print here with equal earnestness. So long as this book shall last, I hope that they will form a part of it, and will be fairly read as inseparable from my experiences and impressions of America. Charles Dickens, May 1868 End of chapter 18 and postscript End of American Notes